Well, good morning, everybody. It's good to see you all here. I am happy to be here. I hope you are too. Good morning to everybody online. And as I always say, good morning to those of you in the future who will watch this later. Um, open your Bibles to Genesis 34. Before we do that, I just wanted to share something that I thought was uh, really encouraging. Um, some of you may recall that um, I talked about some very dear friends of mine who lost their home in the recent fires up in the uh, Louisville area. And these friends, they are um, outspoken Christians. And if you know Louisville and Boulder, it's a pretty progressive and liberal-minded place that's not very welcoming of Christianity in some cases. And these friends, their, their house backs up onto a very popular open space called Davidson Mesa, very highly trafficked trail. Um, a lot of professional athletes work out there because it's a big flat trail system that's about a three-mile loop. And so they have people going by their backyard, their back fence, probably 100 people a day on this trail. When the pandemic had started, then they put some Bible verses on their fence that were encouraging. And... Um, as you can imagine, that was controversial. They had some people very angry about it, some people very grateful for it. And then the fires happened. Uh, go ahead and put that picture up. Their entire neighborhood burned. Everything burned. Every house with a few exceptions, but there was one thing that didn't burn. That is, and that, what used to be on the other side of, their, of that fence is their whole house. You can only see the foundation left. You can see the ground is burned up to the fence, and so everybody who's on this mesa, this is the only thing left standing in that whole neighborhood. There, there used to be dozens of beautiful homes on the other side, you know, as far as you could see, but it's all gone, except for this. So I thought that was neat. I wanted to share that. It's gotten some attention up there. People have started um, tying those. They, there are Christmas lights holding those. You know, people have taken what, rep, what they can find and tied them even tighter to the fence. So... Just thought you'd enjoy that. Let's pray, and then we're going to dive into a uh, tough, uh, tough part of Scripture here. Dear Lord Jesus Christ, you Son of the living God, have mercy on us, Lord. We are sinners. Holy are you, Lord God Almighty. Holy are you. Worthy is your name above all names, Yahweh, you who were and are, and who will be. Worthy is the Lamb who was slain to take away the sin of the world. Worthy are you, Holy Spirit of the living God, who brings gifts and give wisdom and virtue and peace. Do not withhold your gifts from us this morning, Lord. You've given us your word. We're presenting ourselves before you and opening your word for the sole purpose of knowing you better, of experiencing you this morning, of knowing what's good and right and true. So do not withhold that from us this morning. Anoint hearts, soften hearts, open minds, open mouths, and honor our worship that we bring to you later this morning. Amen. Amen. So as Manny was saying, first of all, if you're new, um, well, I'm going to start with something else, actually. If there are children in the room and you were kind of on the bubble of whether or not they should be in the room, they probably shouldn't with this morning's passage. It's a tough passage. So if there's somebody who should be in Sunday school, send them to Sunday school if you can. Because I, I, uh, I want to be able to speak directly to what's on the page and directly to the scripture this morning. So uh, that, that's on you now that I've said that. <laughs> uh, 
because this is what's in the Bible. Um, so if you're new this morning, you know, fast, buckle up. Uh, we are in Genesis 34. This is one of the most difficult passages of, of Scripture. It's difficult because of the material and the subject matter, but it's also difficult because it's really, really, really hard to interpret this passage. Um, Johnny was asking me this morning, he said, you know, what direction are you going to go? And I said, you know, I found, I, 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 do, I listen to a lot of other teachers and preachers and lecturers, and, and when I'm studying a passage, I like to get a lot of different perspectives. And this passage, more than most, you can find God-fearing, Bible-believing, qualified, studied, educated men who come to 180-degree different opinions on this passage. It's really difficult. I found, and, and I am going to take a stand, I'm going to try not to be too uh, wishy-washy on it, but just, just I'm putting that out there that there are better men than I who may disagree with some of the things I have to say. It's not because I'm always right, it's because, you know, I have my reasons for coming to the conclusions, and um, they, I think they're good reasons, but they also have their reasons, and you're going to, you're going to get to, you're going to feel, I want you to feel the tension this morning. So as we go through the passage, I want you to figure out, try and think, like, who do I identify with? in this passage. If I were here, what would I have been thinking and doing and feeling? And, how, and what were the justifications and who's justifying what and how? And the, the other thing is, as we say so much in Genesis, is it makes it a lot harder to understand Genesis if you insist on hanging on with both hands to 21st century postmodern American evangelicalism, you know, Western culture. It won't work. It's incompatible. And that's not the basis on which they were operating here. There's a couple of other things. You know, we have this, this scientific mindset that we bring into all of our theology, and I think it's really unhelpful. Not because science isn't helpful, but because we're, we have this narrative of the, you know, this, this evolution of man, that is where man is always getting better, smarter, faster, stronger with time. And I'm, it's time to let that go, because it's not true. Amen. It's not true. And I don't just mean from a Darwinian perspective. I mean, we are, in many ways, and, and most uh, anthro anthropologists, um, especially if they're genetic anthropologists, will agree, like, in many ways, we are less physically than we used to be. So there are things that you read in Scripture that may have been taken for granted then that we look at it today and say, how could that have been possible? And that's because we have a false narrative in our minds about, how, about the trajectory of humanity. The reality is we're building up in our bodies we're building up mutations over time, and most of them are very harmful. And we're sicker. If we didn't have technology, we would be living a lot shorter than we used to. So we're, we're replacing health with technology, and that trend is going to continue, and it's going to bring us into some alarming places in the future. And you guys, those of you who are on that edge are seeing it already. So I just want you to kind of be in that space of being willing to question everything, of being willing to, um, to uh, throw out preconceived notions, and just look at what it says and try and put yourself into that position. I know there were some folks who, who came in late, so I'm just going to repeat what I said, that this, this um, particular passage is very unsuitable for children, so if there are children who should be in Sunday school, then they should be in Sunday school this morning. Okay, Genesis 34. This, you may have a heading in here that's called The Defiling of Dinah. By the way, as I read this, I listened to um, a whole bunch of uh, Hebrew commentators and lecturers, and they pronounce these names differently. So if you hear me slipping back and forth between Dinah and Dina, or Shechem, or Shechem, you know, that's, it's because they're all bouncing around in my head, and it's a, as I always say, it's a circus up here. Okay, 
So we're, we're just going to go through. I'm not going to read the whole thing like I usually do. We're just going to walk through the events. Now, Dinah, the daughter of Leah, whom she had born to Jacob, went out to see the women of the land. So what's happened before this? They, uh, they have returned from Padam Aram, and they, have, uh, they are re-entering the land of Canaan. Jacob just uh, re reconciled with his brother Esau in kind of an awkward way that uh, he had to stare into the abyss a little bit, be like, hey, this guy has a lot of reasons to kill me. And last time I saw him, he specifically said he was going to, and now here we are, and he's got an army, and I don't. And God had mercy on them, kept there from being bloodshed. And then uh, his, Esau said, hey, come, come live with me. Come stay in my land. Jacob said, yeah, I'll be right there. And then he quickly went the other way. So, that's, so now he's on his own in a new land, and this is ultimately the land of Canaan. And this is the land that is ultimately the promised land. But there are other people who are living in it. Okay? So they get there, and Dinah, the daughter of Leah, which is interesting that they, I, I listened to some rabbis give two hours of lecture on how critical it was that they said she's the daughter of Leah, and what does that mean, and that she's just like Leah and has the same strengths and weaknesses. I don't know. I didn't learn a lot from those. I, it's, it was way too esoteric, but um, this is the daughter of Leah. Now, remember, Jacob has four women with whom he's had offspring, but he has two wives. He has Rachel and Leah. By uh, full-bloodedness, Leah has six older brothers. I'm sorry, Dinah has six older brothers and three half-brothers. She is the tenth child and has nine older brothers. And she's the only girl. So try and put yourself in that dynamic, and you can understand why she says, I want to go out and see the daughters of the land. Why? She has no peers, aside from maybe some, some household servants. Like she's the, she, There are nine older brothers, and she's the youngest. And she's like, hey, I want to go make some friends. I can see a town over there. Let's go see what's up. And I, I don't, there's a lot of people who are really hard on uh, Leah, saying, oh, well, what happens next is Leah's fault because she should have gone. Uh, you're also going to hear me reference the book of Jasher some. Um, it, who's familiar with the book of Jasher? Raise your hand if you have any idea what it is. Okay, book of Jasher is extra biblical. It's mentioned in the Bible, but the version of it we have today is probably not the same thing, and that's okay. The way to think of the book of Jasher is it is the kind of 3,000-ish year old rabbinic traditions around these stories. So they may or may not be true, but they add a whole lot more context to these stories. Kind of have, who's watched the, uh, the show The Chosen, the recent one? Good show, right? Now, they put some filler in there. There's some things that you don't know if that's what happened, but it really helps you understand what may have happened, and it kind of helps you step into the feelings and thoughts and understandings of these people. That's how I approach the book of Jasher. So when I reference the book of Jasher, I'm saying, hey, there's a reason they've had these traditions for a long time. This is how the Hebrew mindset would have understood or would have filled in some gaps around this stuff. And uh, this chapter in the book of Jasher is, you know, like 100 pages. It's a, there's a huge amount of context that they put around the events we're describing today. I found it very, very helpful. You'll hear me reference it here and there. It's not because I'm saying that there's more Bible out there. I'm just saying it's a helpful ancient document to understand some of the th thought process and Hebrew mindset around here. Everybody good on that? Yep. I often get emails saying, what about the book of Jasher? We don't know if it's reliable. Well, we don't, but it's helpful. It's worth reading. Okay. So, uh, the, he, there's a lot of people who are hard on Leah for saying what happens next is Leah's fault because she sent her daughter out alone. Book of Jasher says that, that Dinah went out with her mothers and other women from the household to go, to, basically to go meet the town, which would have been 
Fair. I doubt that they sent their young daughter out by herself. So she went out to see the women of the land. And when Shechem, the son of Hamor, the Hivite, remember the Hivites, the prince of the land, saw her, he seized her and lay with her and humiliated her. So Shechem is this, it doesn't say how old he is, but from the way he behaves throughout this passage, you get the sense that he's a young man and a foolish man and an extremely spoiled person. He's extremely selfish, extremely spoiled, and he acts so immaturely that you, you kind of get the sense that he's this very arrogant person who's never been told no in his life. And we'll, we'll come back to that a few times. So he sees her, and he takes her. And to seize, to, 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 he, he first visually sees her, and then because he's in charge of the whole town and can do whatever he wants, he just takes her. And that's a, a forceful taking. Now, what it doesn't say in here is anything that Dinah did. Dinah didn't, there was nothing, there's nothing in here about what she was wearing or what she said or how she behaved. All of that is completely irrelevant, as it should be in the cases of sexual assault, because this is an assault, okay? So the, 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 the most powerful man in the city, the, the, the heir to everything, his father is the elder, he's the younger, and he's the prince of the whole land, says, I want that, and he takes her. And it says he lays with her, and that's sexually, and humiliates her. That word to humiliate means to, the, the, the Hebrew connotations of it are to afflict. So there's a lot of ways it can be, but basically this is, this is traumatic and awful for Dinah. She's afflicted, she's humiliated, and he had intent in this. That, that was what he wanted, and, you'll, and it'll come back to that. So it's a horrible situation. And his soul was drawn to Dina, the daughter of Jacob, Jacob. Sorry, He loved the young woman and spoke tenderly to her. This is the cycle of, of abuse, guys. This is when you see a relationship that is a cycle of victimizing followed by tender words, followed by victimizing, followed by tender words, that's abusive. And there's something that I want to get out here. I do a lot of speaking about um, sex and sexuality in schools, and that includes a lot of speaking about assault and abuse. Rapists rape and abusers abuse. They, and I, I'm not, I'm not going to get into why or how or all the reasons for that, but that's the pattern. When somebody is an abusive person, they abuse. They find somebody and they abuse them. And it doesn't stop. And it tends to cycle like this. There's a, a, a clinical cycle of abuse that goes with a, a rising tension, some kind of explosive, violent act, followed by apologies and you know, all the promises in the world, followed by rising tension, followed by an explosive act, followed by all, all the apologies and all the tenderness in the world. So that's what he's doing. So he just victimized her, and we'll talk about how old she was in a moment. He victimized her, and then he's speaking very tenderly to her. It's manipulative, it's abusive, and it's wrong. And she's probably, emotionally, she's probably an absolute wreck and has no idea which way is up right now. At no point in this passage is anything, is Dina or Dinah placed in any light except a victim. She's a victim, and that's all she is in this passage. 
His soul was drawn to Dina, the daughter of Yaakov, and he spoke to the young woman and spoke tenderly to her. He loved the young woman, and this word loved, by the way, so when we say loved, we think of the, the Greek concepts of love, because that's what we're brought up with. But um, so there, there's, uh, you know, uh, you have phileo, agape, eros. Agape love is what we think of when we talk about a man loving a woman. It's a sacrificial love. The Hebrew word is not the same thing. It just means to be uh, very, very drawn to, to the point of action. So, you know, so he's loving her the way I love espresso. I'm going to, you know, when I see it, I'm going to get it in me. And, um, and, and so he, he has, a, he has, basically this is an obsession. He's obsessed. And in his broken and lied to and manipulated mind, he thinks that's love. Because he thinks he's doing what's right, at least what's right for him in this case. He believes that because of his feelings, he's justified. And you'll see that when we get into his conversations with other people. And that's, for those of you who haven't seen this or experienced this, there are a lot of people out there like that. There are a lot of people who take no responsibility for how they treat others or how what they do might cause harm or hurt to somebody, and they believe because their intentions were good, then they're always right. And those are toxic people in relationships. There's never an apology. There's only justification. There's only, well, how could you be hurt by this, by this when what I meant was something so good? That's where this guy's at. And that's, that's called, broadly, immaturity. Most young men, and I'm being a little hard on young men, but this happens so much in relationships, most young men will mature beyond that, especially when they have good guidance, but Shechem gets whatever he wants. He gets whatever he wants. He always has gotten whatever he wants. This is probably not his first time in this situation, but for something about Dina, he's like, this is the one I got to have this one. Doesn't matter what it does to her. Doesn't matter the havoc it causes in her life. So Shechem spoke to his father, Hamor, saying, get this girl, get me this girl for my wife. Okay. The word girl there, this is used three times in scripture. The other times it's used, and this is why it's so disturbing, one of the other main times it's used is it's talking about boys and girls playing in the street. So as, as children. So the words above, when it's talking about Dina as the daughter, that means a young adolescent woman. This brings that down even more. She's on the early, early side of adolescence, probably 12, maybe 13. She's a child. She's a child. And even he recognizes that. So it's a, this is a, a messed up situation. You got to remember, she has nine big brothers, and they're big, strong men. Now, Jacob, sorry, Jacob heard about this. I'm in verse 5. Jacob heard that he had defiled his daughter, Dinah. But Jacob's sons were with his livestock in the field. By the way, in, in the Old Testament, when it talks about being in the field, that can be a multi-day thing. That can go on for a while. It's not like, oh, they're out in the North 40. Like, they may be out with the... Because they have lots and lots of flocks and herds. So, so they're, they're out. They're away. They're, they're away. Um, and they may be away for some days. So he says, I'm not doing anything until they get back. So Jacob held his peace until they came. Jacob's in an interesting spot here, isn't he? He's in a very interesting spot. He is a little bit... His sons are grown men, and he doesn't always get along with them. And there's a definite dynamic in his family where 
Leah's sons, who are the older ones, uh, Reuben, Simeon, Levi, Judah, uh, Issachar, Zebulun, um, I think I got that right, the older sons are Leah's, and Leah is his less favored wife. He never intended to marry her. He was tricked into marrying her. And they all know that. And you'll see that Leah's sons, as we go through this, not just this passage, but continue on through, have kind of a chip on their shoulder of knowing that they are not the favored offspring. And Jacob is really bad about this. He's very clearly likes Rachel better and likes Rachel's children better. And so you'll see a couple of times where these older boys kind of step up and defy Jacob because they're trying to protect what they see as their immediate family, and they know that they're not the favored ones. Now, Hamor, the father of Shechem, went out to Jacob to speak with him. So now you've got the two dads getting together, and Hamor has been instructed by his son, get this girl for me for a wife. Now, where's Dinah? She's still in Shechem's house. They haven't let her go. So she's basically been kidnapped at this point. And she's being held in that house, and she is not with her family while these discussions about her future and about the future of the families are going on, and she's at the center of it. She's back in Shechem's household because he hasn't let her go. And you'll prove that later. Verse 7, the sons of Jacob came in from the field as soon as they heard of it, and the men were very indignant and very angry. So they're, and, and the, the word there is a repetitive kind of connotation. They're, they're pacing like a caged puma. They're angry. They're furious, and they're outraged. This is their baby sister. And they're angry because he had done an outrageous thing in Israel. That's a very, very strong phrase that's only used a couple of other times. One of them is with Judah and Tamar. And Judah and Tamar, if you remember, we went through First and Second Samuel, that was also a sexual assault in that case. That was a rape there. And, it was said, you, and she said, you have done an outrageous thing in Israel. This is something that shouldn't be done. Now, the other reason that this is important, notice how it says an outrageous thing in Israel. This is the first time in Scripture that Israel is spoken of as a people instead of a person. So in this chapter, Israel goes from being a family to being a people, to being a distinct nation, distinct from the other nations. So he had done an outrageous thing in Israel. What had he done that was so outrageous? What was what Shechem had done really all that different from what probably went on in Canaan all the time? Probably not that different. Maybe a little edgy because he could throw his weight around a little bit more and he was wealthy and so he could get away with stuff more. So it was probably a little uncomfortable for some people, but not that outrageous that women were traded and, and you know, that marriages were strategic and that demands were made, and, and especially from powerful families. But what, you got to think, what they're looking at is you have this town of people, and it's a wealthy town and a powerful town. This is the Hivites. And then you have this wealthy family of Jacob's family, who, who is extremely wealthy and also extremely strong. And so everybody's always looking at, are we going to fight with these guys, or are we going to get along with these guys? And God has covenanted with the people of Israel saying, this is going to be your land. I will be your God, and you are distinct from the peoples of the land. These are not the people of my covenant. You are the people of my covenant, and you are to be distinct from them. And this is why they've gone to such uh, strategic lengths in previous passages to make sure they're not marrying into the peoples of the land. So what's really happening in this passage is this is a plot of the evil one to try and destroy the covenanted family. He's trying to destroy the line of Jacob. 
He's trying to destroy this line. This is the, line, this is the covenanted line. This is God's people, God's heritage. This is the, the people that God has chosen for himself and by whom he has promised to crush the enemy. So what's the enemy doing? Over and over and over, he's going to try and wipe out this line. And how's he doing it in this case? He's saying, let's just kind of meld it away. Let's just have it, have it just kind of get absorbed into the landscape around it. Now, we don't have time uh, because I'm moving slow, but if we, go to, if we went to, I think it's Deuteronomy 5, you'll see that God specifically tells his people when they get back, when they go, you know, this is post-Genesis, post-Exodus, then they come back to the land. He says, don't marry into the, into the uh, peoples around you, and he specifically lists the Hivites. He says, don't marry into them. Devote those peoples to destruction because they will turn you from me. He says, they worship false gods. They're sinful people. They have no interest in this covenant, and they will turn you from me. So he says, have nothing to do with them. They're your enemies. So they've done an outrageous thing in Israel by lying with Jacob's daughter, for such a thing must not be done. First of all, because she's a child. Secondly, because it was an assault. Thirdly, because it was uh, just a horrific thing to do and, and a very, very dishonoring thing to do. And fourthly, because people of Israel should not be lying with people from the other nations. And so Shechem kind of underestimated what a no-no he had done here. He, didn't, he hadn't realized, partly, mostly because he's a fool and doesn't think about such things, he hadn't realized how seriously this family would take this. He didn't realize that they saw themselves as being a, a specific, beloved possession of God, distinct and separate from the other peoples around them. So you should be thinking about the church. But Hamor, so this is the father, spoke with them. Now he's not just talking to Jacob, he's talking to Jacob and nine angry men, or at least six distinctly older brothers who are very angry. Hamor spoke with them. Now he's trying to diplomatically solve this situation, saying, the soul of my son Shechem longs for your daughter. Please give her to him to be his wife. Make marriages with us. Give your daughters to us and take our daughters for yourselves. He's like, look, guys, this, like, this, I know we got off to a bad start here, but like, th- this can be a good thing. This can be a good thing. Let's just, you, you, your family can be like family to us. Our family can be like family to you because Shechem's not going to let her go. So he's, there, that's, there, he's not really presenting that as an option. He's saying, give Shechem what he wants, and we'll make sure it's good. There's a, um, a quote I was thinking about this week, and I, I let some of them in know as, uh, as we were fasting this week. And um, it says, uh, it's, and I'm going to get it slightly wrong because I don't have it in front of me, but um, Romano Guardini, who's a, a monk, he wrote an incredible book called The Lord. He wrote it in the 50s. And there's a quote that hit me really hard where he was saying, some have said, tell me what moves you and I'll tell you who you are. So this speaks a lot about Shechem. And then he goes on to say, God is a God who is moved by the suffering of the human heart. The pain of our suffering clouds his face, and then we know what, the, what St. Paul means when he talks about the goodness and kindness of God. So tell me what moves you and I'll tell you who you are. Shechem is moved by his obsession with this young girl whom he has hurt, and he's not sorry. So give us your daughters to us. Take our daughters for yourselves. You shall dwell with us, and the land shall be open to you. Dwell in it and trade in it and get property in it. 
Then Shechem jumps in, because this is not moving fast enough for him. Now listen to the arrogance of his statement. Shechem also said to her father and to her brothers, so he's just violated the daughter and and, uh, sister of these people, and this is what he has to say. Let me find favor in your eyes. Now, he's not actually asking. In the Hebrew, what it says is, I'll find favor in your eyes. He's saying, this is going to be okay. And here's how, how he says it. Whatever you say to me, I'll give. Ask for me a great, a bride price, a gift as you will, and I'll give whatever you say. So what he's saying is, look, guys, money's no object. How much do you want? I can do whatever it takes. I heard somebody go, yeah, like, yeah, yeah. Like, what, what, like, this guy, this guy's a, a disaster. And he's in charge of the town. Could you imagine, this, remember how Proverbs talks about how awful it is to be ruled by a fool. This guy is the, is the most important guy in town. And this is the level of judgment he has. He says, I will find favor in this. Ask for me a greater bride price as you want. Any gift you want, I'll give whatever you say. Only give the young woman to me as my wife. Give me what I want. And, and you'll be happy. Give me what I want and you'll be happy. Now, he's making a statement here, really. So what if they say no? What if they say no? What's the, what's the result? War. War. He's, not, he's not offering an alternative. He's saying, let's not fight like we can all get along. But get, I'll do whatever it takes to make sure you guys are happy, except the one thing that you probably want, which is for me to stay away from your sister. The sons of Jacob answered Shechem and his father Hamor deceitfully because he had defiled their sister Dina. They said to him, we cannot do this thing to give our sister to one who is uncircumcised, for that would be a disgrace to us. So circumcision, remember, is the outward sign of the covenant of the people. Now, these, these brothers, they know that there's no business having any, that God has no covenant with the Hivites. They know that. But the Hivites don't know that. And the Hivites don't care about any covenant with God. They don't, they don't give a fig about Yahweh. They don't care. It's not, it's not important to them. He's just some other God. And they have lots and lots of gods. But they said, you know, if our families are going to merge, you got to get circumcised. All of you. And that's, that's what we're asking. So they said to them, we cannot do this thing to give our sister to one who is uncircumcised, for that would be a disgrace to us, as though they haven't already been disgraced. Only on this condition will we agree with you that you will become as we are by every male among you being circumcised. Then we will give our daughters to you, and we will take your daughters to ourselves, and we will dwell with you and become one people. But if you will not listen to us and be circumcised, then we will take our daughter and we will be gone. So that's a... Uh, you know, they're, 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 it's a veiled threat. Yeah. Like, if you don't do this, we're going to come get her, and that means violently entering the city and the household, or you better get out of our way, and we're leaving. So the words pleased Hamor and Hamor's son, Shechem. And the young man did not delay to do the thing, because he delighted in Jacob's daughter. Now, he was the most honored of all his father's house. doesn't say much for their house, does it? So Hamor and his son Shechem came to the gate of their city. Now they've got to convince every guy in town that this is a good idea. <laughs> they got an uphill battle here, right? It's, it's not going to be easy. They're like, listen. But all these guys kind of know, like, Shechem gets what he wants. He's always gotten what he wants. He's the most powerful. He owns everything. 
He's basically offered to ransom the entire town for whatever terms he wants as long as he can have this girl, and he's going to do it. So they, they know, they kind of understand the dynamic here, but they also don't want an uprising in their own town, and this is getting pretty personal for these guys. Like, we got to do what for who? So the young man did not delay, let's see, we're in, um, let's go to verse uh, 21. They said, this is their presentation, these men are at peace with us. Let them dwell um, in the land and trade in it, for behold, the land is large enough for them. Let us take their daughters as wives and let us give them our daughters. Only on this condition will the men agree to dwell with us to become a people when every male among us is circumcised as they are circumcised. Will not their livestock, their property, and all their beasts be ours? Only let us agree with them, and they will dwell with us. So what's Hamor really after? Saying, we're going to take everything that belongs to them. We will subjugate them. They're going to be ours. That's the real terms on the table. Hamor is a lot shrewder and smarter than his son Shechem. Shechem just wants her. Hamor recognizes we can absorb this people. And this is, again, this is the enemy's evil plot to destroy this people to lure them into a situation where they get absorbed and they're no longer a distinct people and they no longer serve Yahweh at all. And all who went out of the gate of the city listened to Hamor and his son Shechem. Oh, by the way, if you read the Jasher account of this, it's a little more complicated than that. Some of the guys were like, no. And, and there were a few who were like, I don't like this plan at all. And don't you know who these people are? Don't you know that those people are distinct and that they're powerful people and that they have a very powerful God? We don't trust them. There, there's a lot of that dynamic that goes on. But the, by and large, most of the men of the city go along with Shechem and say, yeah, let's do it. This is a good plan. We want everything that they have. Um, on the third day, I'm in verse 25, when they were sore, two sons of Jacob, Simeon and Levi. Now, these are the second and third oldest sons. Simeon means um, to hear and Levi means to join with. So they heard and they joined. Dinah's brothers, her big brothers, took their swords and came against the city while it felt secure and killed all the males. Now, there's a word in there that, they, that when it says felt secure, it's, it's a hard word to translate, but basically these guys showed up confidently. The city was confident, but so were Simeon and Levi. They showed up with confidence and they killed all the males. They killed Hamor and his son Shechem with the sword and took Dina out of Shechem's house. So how many days has she been there? At least four. So who knows what she's been going through in the meantime. But it's been at least four, because they wait because there was the first day, and then the guys had to come in from the field, and we don't know how long that happened. And then there was all the negotiation. We don't know how long that took. And there was the circumcision of everybody. We don't know how long that took. And then there was a three-day waiting period. So conservatively, she's been there about a week. Could have been twice that long. Could have been three times that long. So they come in, and it's an absolute bloodbath. Now, this is, and this is what I was saying earlier, like, you have to set aside some preconceived notions that, like, two guys in Scripture, you've got to think of them differently than we think of ourselves in some cases. And when you, when you read the ancient text, it was taken for granted that these people could do things that we probably can't do. They were really strong and really fast. They were, these, are, these people are a lot closer to the perfect uh, genetic code that God originally created, and we're a lot further from that. So there's a lot of places in Scripture where you'll see somebody like one guy will chase down 100 people and kill them if he's got the Spirit of God on him. And that's, that's really interesting. In fact, if you go to, I, I just put, these are a couple of references, and I'm, we're not going to turn to them. Um, Leviticus 26, 
Deuteronomy 32, Joshua 23. These are all places where God says, look, if I'm with you, one of you can chase 100 people, and two, 10 of you can chase 1,000 people if I'm with you. In other words, God's the one who gives the victory. My favorite one is in Joshua 24, 12. And this is something you don't hear preached about a lot. God reminds the people of Joshua. He says, hey, remember those, those Amorites, that one city that was causing you all this trouble? I drove them out for you, and you didn't even have to lift a finger for it. And you know how I did it? Hornets. That's in the Bible. God drove an entire city of people out using hornets. And we're not sure how to translate that word hornets, but you wouldn't want to be there when it happens because they've, those people left the land alone and said, we're never going back there. Whatever happened there was horrific. And God said, I actually drove out an entire city. You didn't even have to fight. That's in Joshua 24, 10, I think. It's just, it's just a good little nugget in Scripture. We're like, wait, 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 hornets? Like, why does everybody skip that? That would be, like, I want to know more about what happened there. How do, you, how do you vacate a land because of hornets? What kind of hornets were these? These murder hornets? I don't know. I don't know. So, in other words, God, God is the one who brings victory. And this is my hang-up with, um, with this. So, here, here's the, the question. Simeon and Levi, did they do the right thing or not? And you're going to find a lot of differing opinions on this. And so we'll keep going because it'll bring this to the head a little bit. So they killed Hamor and his son Shechem. They took Dinah out of Shechem's house in verse 27. And then the sons of Jacob, and this implies all the sons of Jacob, came upon the slain. So they came upon this, this dead city and plundered the city because they, now that's a collective word, the whole city was being held responsible for defiling their sister the whole city. And that says a lot about sin, about what, when something that's happening is very, very wrong, are you willing to stand against it or are you just going to passively go along with it? Because it's not like the entire city had defiled their sister. There are places like that in Scripture that, uh, that, where that does happen. Fortunately, not this one, but the whole city is being held responsible because of what their leadership was able to do and that nobody stood against them in that. So they, the sons of Jacob, in verse 28, took their flocks, their herds. So remember, as, as, as it was threatened to them, so now, they are, so now it's falling down on their heads. They said, oh, we're going to take everything Jacob has. The sons of Jacob took their flocks, their herds, their donkeys, and whatever was in the city and in the field. All their wealth, all their little ones, and their wives, and all that was in the houses, they captured and plundered. So this, this powerful, powerful family just got a whole lot more wealthy and powerful. It's a pretty large group of people now that's migrating. All their wealth, all their little ones, all their wives, whatever was in the houses, they captured and plundered. Then Jacob said to Simeon and Levi, you've brought, now listen to, listen to how many times he says me in here. You've brought me trouble, or you've brought trouble on me by making me stink to the inhabitants of the land, the Canaanites and the Perizzites, those are the ones that are left. My numbers are few, and if they gather themselves against me and attack me, I shall be destroyed, both I and my household. Is he right? He is right that They've put a stake in the ground, setting themselves up as a very dangerous group of people. So what's likely to happen now? Do you think the other cities and towns are going to notice that these guys just completely wiped out the whole city of Shechem, which was a very wealthy city, and took everything? What's probably going to happen? What if somebody moved into your neighborhood and started looting your neighbor's houses? And there was no police force in this case. There was no higher authority to turn to. What's likely to happen? 
an uprising. You're going to see some, some, some uh, you're going to see the, the preparation of these other towns are like, hey, we should get together and do something about these guys. The Bible doesn't say a lot about that. Jasher says a whole lot about that, that there was a whole lot of conflict as a result of this. So was, was Jacob right in what he said? But they said, and this again is collectively uh, in, indicating all of the sons of Jacob, should he treat our sister like a prostitute? And that's the end of the chapter. Are they right? Yeah. So who's right in this? Who's right in this situation? They're all right and they're all wrong. Why? Because of sin. Because that's what sin does. Because that's how ugly sin is. That's the kind of horrific fallout when people act sinfully, that it gets very, very ugly. Was it right for Jesus to die on the cross for us? Yeah. But was it right that Jesus had to die on the cross for us? No. In Christ, you have all of these these, these oxymorons are just reconciled, these paradoxes of righteousness. How can you have justice and mercy? How can Dinah be rescued from that situation? The trauma wasn't undone to her, and don't think that that didn't have a ripple effect through many, many lives, as abuse and sexual abuse do. They affect so many lives. Every, every one of us in here either has been directly or indirectly affected by that kind of behavior, by abusive behavior, predatory behavior. It doesn't go away, does it? We're in a sinful, broken, nasty, fallen world. Now, I want to th- put, shed another light on this. I know we're getting close to time. I want to shed uh, just a little bit more light here. Where else in Scripture does it say that somebody saw the daughters and took them, followed by a destruction? Genesis 6, right? The sons of God saw that the daughters of men were beautiful, and they took of wives whomever they chose because they felt like they could do whatever they want. And what did God do as a result? A whole lot of bad things ensued, and it got exponentially wicked, and he pulled one family out and wiped everything out. Was that the right thing to do? That's what God did. Was he happy about it? No. He was grieved. He was aggrieved of the whole situation because he does care, because what moves his heart is human suffering, and it was a whole globe of human suffering and his supernatural family as well, as we've discussed. That's what it means when it says the sons of God. So does he grieve in this sin? Yes, he does. That's what sin does, is it brings up, it forces these horrible situations where justice becomes bloody. So, you got Jacob looking at it going, great, I was really hoping to blend in and not cause problems here. Now we're sticking out like a sore thumb. And, you know, and, and he's, he's afraid. Should he be afraid? Yes. He should be. However, we're going to see, um, and Brian's up next week. Normally, I would have given this passage to Brian, but I gave him a break. Brian's up next week, um, 
And he's, that what you're going to see right away is God says, come through the land and go back to Bethel where I've last spoke to you. And by the way, every time they start a migration, he reaffirms his covenant. You'll see him reaffirm his covenant as they move after this. And you'll see him put terror of, of this people on the people around them so at least they can get safely to Bethel. That's not the end of the story. We know that ultimately they do have to go to war with everybody in this land. They do have to go to war with everyone in this land, and it goes on and on and on and on, and a lot of that is a story of Scripture. So I I think there's a a lot to be said based on on how we've studied Scripture so far and based on the, the nested truths that we've seen in Genesis, that you can look at this story and say, we, the church, God's people, are Dina. We're Dinah in this story. We were brought into a land with blessing, Let's have the worship team come on up as I describe this. We were brought into a land with blessing. We were, we were given a beautiful land. We were naive. We were innocent. We're thinking Garden of Eden situation. We were lied to, and then we were victimized. By whom? By the evil one. By those who rebelled against God. Why? Because they said, we're going to take everything that they have and subject them to us. And we're suffering as a result. Like Dinah, suffering for however many weeks in that house, not knowing what was going on, getting no news from the outside, really not knowing anything except having to trust that my father and his sons know where I am, my brothers know where I am, surely they'll do something. And that's pretty much our existence in this life, isn't it? We're suffering as a result of sin because we as a people and as a, as a species have been victimized by the evil one. He's preying on us. This, and this is why Paul says things like, our struggle isn't against just the broken people around you. There's a whole series of layers of spiritual war that's going on. This is a spiritual warfare story. This is the enemy trying to wipe out the people of God. And you can see yourself in there when you look at the church as Dinah. And God saying, I'm, I'm going to do something about this. Now, later, some of you will, will point out that uh, in Genesis 49, when Jacob blesses his sons at the end of his life, he, he um, is hard on Simeon and Levi for their violence. And I just wanted, so those of you who don't know what I'm talking about, you can go read Genesis 49 later. It's after the story of Joseph. He's not saying that what they did was wrong, however. He's saying that they were wrong because they loved the violence of it. Simeon and Levi loved the violence. They had a good time with wiping out that city. Not everybody else in his family did, but they enjoy it. And that has its own problems, doesn't it? And then when we read Revelation, we're going to see, and you can put it together with Psalms, and we've done some of this, and if this isn't making any sense, come talk to me. We can, we can reconnect these things, but we're going to see that this story of what happened to Shechem in this Hivite city is very similar to the story of Scripture of when Christ is going to return and wipe out those who have been oppressing His people, those who have been victimizing His people. And when you read Revelation, it's bloody. That war is a spiritual war that happens in a very fleshly way, and it says the blood flows as high as the horse's bridles for a thousand stadia. So sin results in blood. And Jesus took that battle for us, and our victory is in Him for whomever would have Him. 
He took that blood battle because we are all under that curse of sin. We're all traumatized by it. We're all victimized by it. We all suffer for it, but we also all participate in it to one degree or another. And if we're ever going to be lifted out of that, we have one hope, and it's that the blood that flows isn't our lifeblood. And that's what Jesus did for us. And our victory over sin, as bloody and nasty as it is, is in Christ Jesus. Let's uh, sing this first song together, and then I'll come back and lead us in communion. All right, go ahead and have a seat for a couple minutes. And I want to... um, I want to really get inside that moment where Dinah, who's in Shechem's house and has no idea what's going on and has been in there for a while and has been through all sorts of abuse, and all she knows is, I'm not sure what I did wrong, but I'm pretty sure it wasn't supposed to be like this. And the fear and the uncertainty. Meanwhile, she's probably given anything she wants except for what she wants, right? She's being treated like a a queen, but she's also a slave. And it doesn't, and and the, the incongruity of it for her is misery, uncertainty, wondering what's taking so long. And then, people start to get really panicky and she can hear something going on outside and it doesn't sound good. There's screaming and chaos and crashing and people running around and she's probably being shoved into an inside room somewhere. Nobody's telling her what's going on. And it seems like the whole world is coming apart and she has no idea what's happening. And then her brothers, who she didn't know if she was going to see again, kick the door in as they're ransacking the place, and they are bloody. They have swords, and they're dripping. And those are the hands that are extended to her. And can you imagine the, that in one sense... There's nobody she'd rather see in the world because these are her people who love her, who have come to rescue her, but it's a terrifying sight. And those are the arms that she climbs into as as they pull her up and hold her. And she was probably worried that they'd be mad at her, wasn't she? She was worried that they... That they, were, that they were blaming her, that, it was, that she did something wrong, that it was her fault, and now they've got to clean up a mess that she made. But I don't think that's how they felt about her, did they? Not at all. Not at all. And they pull her up and carry her like the treasured possession she is, like a baby, because she still is, out of there, and back to her family where she belongs. That's, that's the Christian life. That is what it is to be part of the church of Christ. That's where we live in the meantime. We live in a house that's where we, we're not in charge, and we go, I'm not sure what I did wrong, but I'm pretty sure it wasn't supposed to be like this. On one hand, I can have anything I want. On the other hand, 
I can't seem to find what I really want. And when I do have a sense of it, it's elusive. It's not there. And everything I find is a counterfeit and a lie. And everything that, that I, and I keep getting told lies. I keep getting told that I'm happy and that I have what I need and that I can have what I need over here and that this will make me happy and that that will make me happy and the other will make me happy. And none of it does because something's missing. There's something about the, the love, the identity, the familyhood, and we don't really know who we are or what's going on and what our role is, but something's missing. And we have this belief in the back of our mind that we know that there's somebody out there who loves us and we're wondering why he's taking so long. And then it starts to get more and more chaotic. And it seems like you, and the world doesn't make sense anymore. And there's a lot of war and rumors of war, and we feel like we're being shoved here and shoved there, and we can't tell if we're the enemy or not most of the time. And brothers and sisters, proverbially, that family we've been waiting on is going to kick in the door, and the arms that are extended to us are going to be bloody. And on one hand, we're gonna, not going to be sure if we should be delighted or terrified. And the truth is, probably both. Probably both. But those arms are going to scoop us up, blood and all, and say, don't worry. I'm here, and I paid for it, and you're with me now. Let me pray for us. Father in heaven, sink these truths into our heart, Lord. You who bled and died and who took the punishment of sin, you who carried the blood on yourself, you who fight the battle for us that we could never fight to rescue us from a situation that, that is victimizing and painful and ugly and confusing to us, you who will lift us out of that situation, who have paid the price, Father, who've paid the price to, to reconcile it, to lift us beyond that. And Lord, the only hope we have, really, is to do the best we can and know that you're coming, that you're coming, that you haven't forgotten us, that you have promised you will come, and that you have promised that the, the evildoers will be punished. And that's not so much the people around us as the spirits behind them, Father. And you're not blind to any of it. It doesn't make a lot of sense to us. It's hard to see. But you give us these stories in Scripture to show us the truth of it. And so, Lord God, as we take communion, sink that into our hearts about the, the battle that you were fighting, that you also know the victimization, that you also know the pain of the world, that you're not aloof and removed from it, and you're the one who can do something about it. And you started by being willing to subject yourself to it, by entering into our experience when you didn't have to, but for our sakes, you were willing to. And that you've promised us that we'll have every good thing. Most of all, what we really need is to be loved and love you and be in your family and have the sin be gone. And you've promised us that, Lord, and it came at a great price for you. And that's why we take communion is to remember the, the toll you took in your body, the blood that you shed to pay for sin. Lord, let us trust you and re return ourselves to you, our hearts to you. And Lord, let us hang on to that hope that you are coming and that you haven't forgotten us. We pray these things in Jesus' name.
as we worship together. Amen.